Lord Jesus, as, as David was sharing earlier, it's, it's a humbling thing to come and open the very word of God. You say that the word is living and active, Lord. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Would you come now, Lord? Would you bring this very word to life? Lord, it is not about me and my words. May it never be. It is about you speaking to your people. So, Lord, as always, may I decrease and you increase this morning. Come and have your way in our midst, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus' most famous uh, series of teaching. Um, and just to recap a little bit where we've been, uh, we started in Matthew chapter 5. We're, we're still there. We're about 20 verses in. And essentially, let me sum up what Jesus has been saying. The king is doing something new. Right? Everything Jesus has been saying up to this point has been trying to get the people's attention and let them know the king is up to something new. And so he started with the Beatitudes. The king is looking for a new kind of person. Not just someone who does the right things, but he names all of these heart-type things. Someone who is poor in spirit, who is pure of heart, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. This would have been new to them. The king is looking for a new kind of person. Someone to be salt and light in the world. Last week, we looked where Jesus came and he... he Again, he's trying to get their attention, almost like shake them awake a little bit. He goes, hey, you know that old covenant that you guys are so in love with? I haven't come to destroy it, but I've come to fulfill it and put it to bed. Because the king is doing something new. The old covenant is exactly what it sounds like, old. And the king is doing something new. And he calls for a new kind of righteousness. And he ended with this verse that we looked at last week. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For, for those who were here last week, heard us talk about this. What would the people have thought when they heard Jesus say this? What, what would have been the first thing that came to their mind? Unless you are more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes over here, you'll never enter this new kingdom. What would they have thought? Oh no, how can this be? It's impossible. If they can't make it, who can? They would have heard Jesus say this. He was saying a new righteousness is needed. They would have had those questions of like, wait, 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 we have to do even more? We have to go even further? Because listen, the old covenant was a weight to be carried. It was regularly referred to as a burden, especially as it was being taught when Jesus came. Jesus actually accused those scribes and Pharisees. He says, you put this impossible weight on these people, but you don't even try to help them lift it. The way that they understood the law was this boulder on their back to be carried and initially, they would have heard Jesus say, you need to go even further. You need to do even more. It was almost like their greatest fear realized. We're trying so hard and God's going, not good enough. But listen, we know the rest of the story. This would have gotten their attention. They would have had that, that panic. They would have been hanging on his next words because what are you talking about? But Jesus wasn't calling them to do more righteousness. He was calling them to redefine 
righteousness. God is doing a new thing, and he's calling for a new kind of righteousness. What the scribes and the Pharisees have been teaching and, live and modeling up to this point doesn't cut it. That ain't it. They're, they're actually, it's not that they're not doing enough. They're headed in the wrong direction. And so Jesus is trying to give people a new lens to view righteousness through. He just said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will see the kingdom of God. But we have to understand what righteousness actually looks like. Not more righteousness, but a new kind. And then, so Jesus starts his next couple teachings with, with this very famous line, you've heard it said, but I tell you. So he goes, look, 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 we, we're, we, we, have to, we have to understand righteousness in a new way. You've always understood it this way, but I'm going to give you a new way to view it. You've always heard this, and he doesn't say, and that's wrong, why did you ever listen to it? He goes, but the way you've understood it isn't what the Father meant. I'm going to now tell you how to view it. Does that make sense? He, he's going to go through this the next couple of weeks. We, we're going to look at this. You've heard it said, but I tell you. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. And I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid every last penny. Okay, so uh, hellfire and judgment are mentioned quite a lot, and so that should get our attention, right? Oh, we better key in on what Jesus is saying here. So we're going to go through and just kind of break this down uh, verse by verse and walk through it. But I want to say, first of all, I'm going to say brother a lot this morning. And just know every time I say brother, I mean brother or sister. Uh, the word just, when Jesus was talking, he was speaking to a mostly male audience, and so he just said brother. But this is not one of those male-only things. This is all people, okay? So if I just say brother, know that I mean brothers or sisters, okay? All people. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. So again, he starts with that, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And listen, this would have got their attention like... The, like I said a couple weeks ago, if you really kind of can view what Jesus said through a first century Jewish lens, it's not hard to see why they killed him. It really isn't. Honestly, it would be like me standing up here reading this passage and go, yeah, that's what Jesus said, but I'm going to tell you something new. I hope every single one of you would go, whoa, 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 whoa. Who are you to tell us something new? Listen, that would be the right question to ask. Who, who are you to add to what God has said? Who are you to tell us a new command or a new way to look at the word? And listen, my answer would be, you're right, I'm nobody. I shouldn't tell you that. 
But when they ask this question, who does this guy think he is? In a few verses, actually, we won't look at it this morning, but in a couple weeks, the Pharisees actually get caught thinking that. Who does this guy think he is? Because who's the only one that can add a new command? God. Who's the only one that can change the old covenant? God. Who's the only one that can introduce a new one? God. And so when Jesus is, is saying these things, you've heard it said, and then he quotes the law, but I tell you, but what I say trumps that, the people would have been like, ooh, I don't know about this. This is kind of scary. Unless this guy is really who he says he is, this is shaky ground. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And then he pulls something out of a hat that they never would have seen coming. Did he just say that being angry with someone is like murder? Really? When, you're, when you murder someone, like, that's it. They're dead, right? There's no going back. Is really just being angry with someone anywhere near that same level? Why would he even say that? Everything in the law, everything in the old covenant, as they understood it, as they had been taught about connecting with God, was understood to be about external behavior. Do this, don't do that. Wear this, don't wear that. If something happens, you just take a bath and clean the outside of your body and everything's okay. It was all about this external as they had been taught. They had completely overlooked the posture of the heart. This is what David was sharing about when he came up earlier. Not just about like saying and doing the right things, but I want my heart to be changed. They had completely missed this with the way that the law was being taught. It was about do this, don't do that. And to be honest, who cares what's happening inside? Literally, it was fine to hate your brother and sister. Just don't kill them. You could cut them off from relationship. You could call them names. You could tear them down. You could wish ill on them. Just don't kill them. And God's fine with that. As long as you don't actually physically harm them or kill them, they would have been taught, God has no problem with that. You're fine. You have heard it said, but I tell you. One of the major points that Jesus is trying to make here, he's trying to help them and, and us today understand that in his kingdom, internal righteousness matters as much, if not more, than external righteousness. What's happening on the inside matters as much, if not more, than what actually even comes out. And listen, there's, I was trying to find a better way to say that because it, it's a misunderstanding to pit internal against external. Like, I... That's not what I'm trying to get at here is like, as long as your heart's okay, who cares what comes out? Or as long as you act okay, who cares what's inside? That, that was the way they approached it. But Jesus was going, these are actually on the same level. What's happening in your heart and mind matters just as much as what actually comes out. Your motives, what's going on in your heart matters just as much as your actions themselves. And I would, listen, I would venture to say maybe even more. Do you know that we can do the right things for the wrong reasons? There's a lot of people, let's take church for an example, who show up at church regularly on a Sunday morning, but their hearts are not right with God. They do it because it's what they taught you had to do. 
They do it because maybe they have some kind of bargain worked out with God. I'll give you my Sunday mornings, you leave everything else alone, or whatever weird things we do with God. But there are plenty of us who show up on Sunday mornings, maybe even faithfully, maybe every single Sunday, but our hearts are not right with God. We're not actually worshiping. We don't hear the word of God and go, I want that so bad for my life. We're doing the right thing, but our hearts don't match up. Do you know that it's actually possible to do the wrong thing without wrong motives? We just call it immaturity. One of my favorite stories, uh, I shared earlier about Really Recovered, um, the, the ministry up in Ohio who, who deals with people coming through addiction and, and into recovery. And one of my favorite stories is there was a lady uh, who came to faith through their ministry and a few weeks after she had been saved, she got to stand up in front of her church uh, and share her testimony. And as she was sharing, I'm gonna use a harsh consonant here, so just bear with me. She said to her church, have you read this effing book? She didn't say effing. It effing changed my life. You know what I think God said? She gets it. People in the audience were like, <gasps> We don't say that. You definitely don't say that here. You whisper it when you're cut off in traffic, but you don't say that here. Are you kidding me? She said absolutely the wrong thing. Listen, I'm not saying we should come in here and start cussing at each other. Like, I, I don't believe that that is the way God has called us to live. But in that moment, she was young, she was immature. I think God went, she gets it. What about the rest of you? She was so excited, the wrong thing came out, but her heart was right before God. I believe as she has grown, she's learned this is not the best way to communicate. <laughs> this is not the way that God has called me to use my words. But in that moment, she did the wrong thing, but her heart was right before God. The parts of us that no one else sees are seen and weighed by God. They had been taught as long as you don't do the action. As long as you don't actually murder, whatever is going on in here is fine. But Jesus said, I tell you, to even be angry with your brother or sister is to be in danger of judgment. Is he really putting ang being angry with someone on the same level as murder? Yes, because the two are cut from the same cloth. Both lead toward judgment. Murder begins with anger. What Jesus was telling them is deal with the root, not just the fruit. It's not about, hey, stop doing that. It's about, Lord, what is wrong in my heart that I would do that, that I would even be tempted to do that? Like, do you see the difference? Listen, this, this wasn't actually a new idea. You know, Jesus said, you have heard it said. They had heard it said wrong. They had heard it taught incompletely. This whole thing of your heart matters, the posture of your heart matters, was not a brand new idea to Jesus. It was a lost idea to the people. Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. They had had this for hundreds of years by the time Jesus got there. The, the, the problem is not what you're doing with your hands. The problem is your heart. And if we're not careful to guard our heart, it leads us into wrong action. David, in Psalm 139, he says, Search me, God, and know my heart. 
Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David was going, look, Lord, don't just stop my actions. Don't just keep me from doing the thing wrong. Help me understand what's going on in my heart that is leading me there because the, out of the posture of my heart, my words and my actions flow. Pretty famous verse, God talking to Samuel um, when he was choosing David to be king of Israel. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance. David was, was small, didn't look like a king. Or his height, or talk, talking about David's brothers first who actually did look like kings, huge guys. For I have rejected them. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God has always been after the heart of his people. Everything that we do flows from the heart. And so God doesn't say, stop doing that. He says, what's broken in your heart? How do we fix that? The actions will follow. The words will follow. Is this making sense, church? You don't have Kim here to cover for you with amens and hallelujahs, so I need something from you guys. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment, and whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. Whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. This word fool there, it's the, uh, the Greek word raka. And really it has this idea of someone who's overcome with anger in the moment and just blurts out. Okay, we, we've all been there where you just get so red under the collar that like you just, you say something that maybe even after you say it, you go, that was wrong. Like you, like you know it, it's coming out, but you were just so overcome by anger in the moment that it came out. He says, look, even, even that person overcome in the moment who chooses to belittle a brother, who chooses to call him a fool, he's answerable to the Sanhedrin. The, the Sanhedrin was the ruling council of Israel. If you broke a religious law, you went and stood before the Sanhedrin. Okay, These were like the leaders of the nation of Israel even to be overcome in the moment and to use your anger to belittle a brother or sister, he says that person is in danger of judgment. But then he goes even further. But whoever says you moron will be subject to hellfire. The word used for, for moron there carries this idea of a settled and fixed hatred. It's not just I was angry in the moment. It's I've remained angry. This relationship has broken, and I've allowed it to just fester. I have harbored my anger. We talk about harbored sin whenever we come to the communion table, and we say that sin that we've given safe harbor in our lives, we, we've protected it, we've, we've maybe nurtured that sin, and we've tried to keep God out of it. That is this idea with, with calling a brother or sister a moron is to go, you are worthless, and, and, and I'm choosing to remain there. You are dead to me. Our relationship is broken, and I don't care. He says to hold that in our hearts. Listen, this should wake us up. That person may be subject to hellfire. To stand in judgment of our brother and sister, really to place ourselves in God's position and go, I deem you worthless. He says to have that kind of position in your heart 
is to be in danger of hellfire. Again, I think he's trying to get beyond the words. It's not about if you actually, how many of you have said raka to someone lately? Anyone? Me neither, okay? It's not about the actual word choice, it's about the posture of the heart. And he says, be so careful, the posture of your heart towards your brothers and sisters, because, because of it, some will be in danger of judgment. Listen, let me ask this question. Let's, let's talk here for a minute. What is behind our anger? Jesus talks about this being angry with a brother or sister. Listen, the anger is the fruit. It's not the cause. What is behind our anger? What are some root causes for our anger? When, when you get angry with somebody else, this takes a moment of self-reflection and maybe some vulnerability. What's, what's really going on? So hurt or fear, pride, I would say hatred's in there with anger. There's something else behind hatred. I wanted to be in control. I didn't get my own way, okay? What else? What's behind anger? Envy? Insecurity? Okay, who has the upper hand? Again, a lot of things are going to come back to control because we're broken. What else? Jealousy? Yeah? Anything else? Sure. Sure. When we are anxious inside, and, and listen, whether that anxiety comes from feeling out of control, whether feeling like the expectations are too high, and I, like, the fuse becomes shorter and anger starts to come out more. But listen, Jesus wasn't going, man, it's just how dare you feel an emotion of anger. It's the stuff behind the anger that he's going, if you're not careful of this, it will destroy you. The, excuse me, the anger is the, the outward display, but there's something much deeper going on. Anger is a secondary emotion. Most often we feel something we don't like and so we choose anger instead because it makes us feel bigger, stronger, more in control, powerful, whatever. It, let's be honest. It feels good to be angry. It might, it might not feel good like what someone did to make you feel angry, but when you feel angry, you feel righteous. You feel in control. You get to stand there and go, how dare they? Could they not see? How dumb are they? It feels good to be angry. And we typically choose that because we felt something that felt weak, powerless, hurt, insecure. Those are the things Jesus is going, man, if we don't deal with these, they're going to destroy you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, he shows us that anger, the emotion of anger, is not really the problem. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. I've taught this passage many times, and I am so grateful that Paul says, excuse me, that Paul doesn't say, don't ever feel angry. Listen, how good are you at controlling what emotions come into your heart? Not great, right? Anger is there, whether I want it to be or not. I can't just flip a switch and turn it off. 
I, I don't have that power. But what Paul says is, look, anger may be present, but don't give it control. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down. Deal with whatever is going on quickly. Because listen, to leave it there unchecked gives the enemy ground in your life. And what is the enemy's ultimate goal for you, for me? Kill, steal, destroy. Don't give the enemy power in your life by remaining in your anger, by harboring it, protecting it, nurturing it. It will destroy you. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 12. So after the Sermon on the Mount, another teaching. He says this, and it struck my heart. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus, are you really saying being angry with my brother and sister is, is like on the same level as murder? He goes, listen, one day we're all going to have to stand and give an account for every careless word. God doesn't have these things where he goes, these are so small, I don't care about those, just the big ones. He goes, I care about all of it. Even the careless words that you say, fool. Like, listen, I'm bad. In traffic, I have to catch myself because I'm, you moron, that's not me. I don't flip people off. I don't have road rage. But I will just whisper to myself, idiot. Come on. My move for a while, I had to stop, was just looking in the, in the windshield and going, thumbs, like, I can't flick you off. I'm not allowed to do that. So I'm just going to let you know, mm, that was, I don't like that. Like, and the Lord was going, what are you doing? It felt so small. It was just my own little thing. And he's going, one day, you're going to have to stand before me and give an account for every thumbs down, <laughs> for, for every careless word, whether the person heard it or not because your heart was not right before me. Are you, are you guys, you understanding how these are tying together? So let's go back to Jesus' teaching. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. Whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your gift. The offering in the, in the Old Testament, in Jesus' day, was the most sacred act of worship. And it had to be done perfectly. Yeah, like you had to bring whatever your sacrifice was, had to be perfect and without blemish, or it was completely unacceptable. This was like the core of God's covenant with his people, Israel, was their sacrificial system. And so Jesus is going, when you're coming and doing your most sacred act of worship, if you remember at that point that your brother has something against you, leave it and walk away. What is going on between you and your brother or sister is more significant than your worship to me. And listen, even today, this can hit us kind of wrong because we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. My worship, it's so personal. It's between me and God. I'll, that's what he's after, though, isn't he? When Jesus even said, your brother has something against you, listen, what he's saying is, you've done something to wrong your brother. When you remember, man, I, I said that thing. I, I, I was angry towards them. I hurt them. I, 
I come to offer my gift before God and something goes through my mind of that one thing that I said to that person, whatever it is. He goes, this is of the utmost importance. Leave your gift. Stop singing your song. Don't worry about putting it in the offering plate. Go and deal with your brother and sister. Go and be made right. Be made whole with them. It is more significant to be made right with our brother and sister than to offer God the choicest offering or worship. They had this, this idea at the time that me and God can be okay while me and you are not. There was plenty of room in the law for that because again, as long as I haven't murdered you, God doesn't care. And Jesus was going, no, 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 no. It is a false way of thinking that me and God can be okay while me and you are not. We have this me and Jesus culture right now that goes, me and Jesus are fine. As long as I read my Bible and me and Jesus do our thing, you guys are nice to have, but you're not really necessary. And honestly, if one of you gets on my nerves or says something to me or whatever, it's easy to just kind of go, okay, whatever, and me and Jesus are just going to go do our thing. This is the culture we've tried to set up, and Jesus says it's ridiculous to think that you can be okay with God and not in right standing with brothers and sisters is foolishness. John teaches this in, in 1 John chapter 2. He says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Our relationships with each other matter deeply to God. And listen, in case when I first read this, I was like, oh, good. I don't think I technically hate anyone. There's some people that get on my nerves, some people I'd rather not see, some people who said that thing to me that one time that, like, I still don't like to be around them, but I don't, like, hate them. I've never wished that they died and went to hell or anything like that. But when you actually look at what the word hate means, it means prefer myself over. Anyone that I'm putting myself above I, I hate them in comparison with how much I love me is kind of the idea. I'm better than them. I'm more valuable than them. I treat them as less than. Anyone who treats their brothers and their sisters in this way walks in the darkness, stumbles around, lost and blind. Two chapters later, John says, we love because God first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, that same word for hates, is a liar. For whoever does not, does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. We have to get any kind of thinking out of our head that goes, I don't really need you, and what's happening here isn't as important as what's happening here. That is not the truth that the scripture teaches Leave your, altering or your, your offering at the altar. Stop singing your song. Go and be made right because that is more important than the worship that you were going to give me. That is actually a better offering than what you had planned on giving to me. It is an impossibility to be right with God yet remain in broken relationship with our brother or sister. Now listen, I always give this caveat here, this qualifier I'm so grateful that Paul taught this over in Romans chapter 12. 
Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Paul goes, look, let's deal with the stuff in our own lives. The, the pride, the I, I distance myself from people who aren't good enough for me. Um, I, I want to repay evil for evil. He goes, man, we've got to deal with all of that stuff in our own hearts. But there's another side to the equation, isn't there? There's the other person. And I'm so grateful that Paul put that last line in there. If possible, or another translation says, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. That person, I may come to them and go, look, I was at church today and I was just really convicted of the way that I spoke to you last week and I'm, I'm sorry, I was wrong to do it. They may say, get out of my face. I don't want anything to do with you. They, they may choose not to forgive. They may choose to hold a grudge. They, there is nothing that I can do there. But the question is, as far as it concerns me, as far as it is possible with me, am I at peace with everyone around me? Have I gone and confessed my, my shortcomings? Have I lived in humility toward them? If so, my offering is acceptable to God. I can be in right relationship with him going, God, they hate me, but I refuse to return the favor. They're angry with me, but I refuse to remain angry toward them because our relationship means too much. This is where I really wish Kim was here. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Jesus goes on then to teach in Matthew 5, 25. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. For I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Understand this. Jesus didn't pivot real quick and give them some legal advice. He wasn't going, look, at some point we're all going to get sued, okay? And here's the best way to handle it when you get sued. Not at all. But he was saying, like, look, in your relationships with each other, time is ever marching us towards a day of accountability. Go and make things right with your brother and sister now while you have time. Don't put it off. Don't wait. One day we will all stand before the judge and we will have to give an account for every careless word. Don't Wait until then. Go be made right with your brother or sister now. Thank you. Those that we have wronged, those that we have sinned against or mistreated, those that we hold a grudge against, listen, they have an advocate. Sometimes I get into this thing of going, God's on my side, which means he's also against the people I'm against because he sees things the way I see things. You know what I mean? God is for you. And if I'm against you, that means I've put myself in opposition to God. You have an advocate. I have an advocate. When we stand opposed to one another, we place ourselves opposed to God. And I, that's not a place I want to be. It's not a place I want to remain. So go and make things right while you still have time because one day we will all stand and give an account. Maybe you didn't act on your anger. Maybe you didn't say the thing you wanted to say or do the thing you wanted to do, but you knew what was going on in your heart and in your mind. You know when you think about that brother or sister, you know things are broken. 
You know there's things you wish you had said or things you wish you wouldn't have said. Don't wait. Go and be made right. I want to end by just having a time of silence for us to ask a couple questions. We put that last slide up on there for me. Just to sit and listen. These are prayerful questions. Things to ask and then just sit and go, Lord, would you show me if any of these things are here? Like David prayed, Lord, search my heart, know me, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. If there's anything offensive there, lead me in the way everlasting. And so I want to spend a few minutes just here with each of us personally, just asking the Lord these questions. Have I allowed anger to ferment in my heart and mind? Have I harbored it? Have I justified my anger? Most of us, along with angry, comes, and, I, and let me tell you why it's okay that I'm angry. Have I justified my anger? How? Am I willing to release my anger to God? Listen, this is one of those things we all know the right answer is yes, but this is a very personal question, but am I actually willing to do it? And then maybe the hardest one of all, is there a conversation that I need to have with someone else? Leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. As far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. So let's take a few moments and just sit, and in the stillness where you are, just asking the Lord to reveal these things in your own heart. And listen, if he brings something up, deal with it. Listen, if you've got to step out and take a phone call, if you've got to walk across the room, do it. Leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. So let's spend a few moments. Lord Jesus, your word is true. Your word is always true. I truly believe you. You care less about our actions than we think, and you care more about our hearts than we will ever know. Lord, if there is any area where anger has taken root in our heart, where we've harbored it, we've allowed it to, to fester, would you bring it out? Would you bring it to the surface that it could be dealt with? That we could be healed and move forward? That our relationships could be healed and whole? Lord, that we could experience the kind of unity that your word talks about that is a miraculous unity that the world will even take notice of because they've never seen anything like it before.
All of this has to be done by your Holy Spirit, Lord, in your power, in your name. Lord, if conviction is necessary, then convict our hearts. If boldness is necessary, Lord, then give us boldness to go and have the conversation. Lord, repentance, forgiveness, whatever is needed, would you supply everything so that we can be the men and women, the brothers and sisters, the family that you have called us to be. In your name and for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name.